Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I have no doubt many of you are familiar with Wordle, the online word game where you have six chances to guess a five-letter word. Now, I am a sucker for a good word game, so of course I play it every day, and not only do I play it every day, I play it at midnight when the new game goes live. It's just so satisfying to strategically choose a sequence of words that will hopefully get you to the right place. And I love games in general, but I am especially fond of games where you feel like you've won something, even though you haven't, and where I suppose winning makes you feel just a little smarter than you actually are. And so now I'm on the hunt for great games because it's a little addictive. And so I've also started playing a Wordle spinoff called Hurdle. Instead of figuring out what the word of the day is, you have to figure out the song of the day. So you'll hear a tiny little snippet of music like this. Then you guess or don't. And if you don't, you hear a little bit more. Do you still not know? Worry not. You can hear even more. All in all, you get six chances. And so here's your last clue. The first person who guesses this song correctly on the day the episode drops will get a free signed book from me. So email your guests to RoxanneGayAgenda at gmail.com. From Luminary, this is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. I am Roxanne Gay, hopefully your favorite bad feminist. On this week's agenda, Twitter. 
You know, social media seems like such a great idea. You can connect with people all around the world who do all kinds of interesting things. You can have fun or strange conversations. You can have almost immediate, though questionably reliable, access to breaking news. You can engage in activism. You can argue. As a writer, I've found it to be a useful sandbox where I can kick ideas around for essays. On a more personal level, you can make new friends. You can interact with existing friends. You can flirt with people or more. Sometimes those connections are even going to translate into in-person encounters. What I'm saying is that I've met some of my best friends on Twitter. But social media is not always great, especially Twitter. Previous guest S.A. Cosby recently said online, This isn't my original thought, but social media has made too many people comfortable with disrespecting someone and not getting punched in the face for it. (laughs) And he's right. There is just something about this impersonal barrier of a screen that empowers people to say wildly disrespectful, cruel, or otherwise insulting nonsense that I assure you, they would never, ever have the courage to say to someone's face. Online, there are simply no limits. The freedom to speak becomes warped into this freedom to give in to every lesser urge. It's all ego and id. And nuance suddenly disappears. All of the conversations that you once hoped to have are simply not possible because people are either too antagonistic or they're too deeply entrenched in their positions or they're too defensive. Everyone wants to talk and no one wants to listen. But still, there are these delightful moments every once in a while where something happens on Twitter that captivates everyone's imagination because someone has figured out how to tell one hell of a story via the medium. Today, I am going to talk about this amazing Twitter thread I read several years ago now by Asia King, who was telling a story of (laughs) a friendship gone really, really wrong. And not only was that story a Twitter thread, it ultimately became the movie Zola, directed by the one and only Janixa Bravo. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. At the time, Janixa Bravo wasn't even on Twitter when this amazing thread happened. It was 2015. It was Asia King's epic thread about this friendship that ended in shambles after a really disastrous road trip. There's a stripper turned call girl, a hapless lovelorn boyfriend, a Nigerian pimp, as one does, a woman caught up in a situation she wants no part of, and many, many wild twists and turns. The Twitter thread itself was this great story, grippingly well told. And even though Bravo was not on Twitter, she heard about the thread and knew that she was the one who was destined to make a movie out of it. It did take a while to get the rights, but she got it done. And so that movie, Zola, came out in January of 2020, right when the entire world was about to hunker down. Bad timing, awesome movie. From here on out, watch every move this bitch make. Janixa Bravo has made two feature films, including Zola. She's worked on many plays because theater is her first love. She's also directed episodes of TV like Atlanta and Dear White People. Janixa Bravo, welcome to the Roxanne Gay Agenda. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because I'm a fan of your work. So how did you come to this story? I know that you heard about it because you weren't 
on Twitter. So what was it that drew you? And I'm still not on Twitter. And I feel really good about that. That's such a great choice. I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you. Hold that ground. Do not give up that ground. There, there are definitely moments that I feel maybe I've missed something. Mm -hmm. I think at the very beginning, or what is the beginning of Twitter to me, I'd been dating a comedian. And so mm -hmm. I was in the circle of comedians and their relationship to needing to post this basically like, you know, a soundbite, but in text form. Uh, and, and the way that they would play with one another went from quickly charming to not charming. And I mm -hmm. thought, I just don't want to have this relationship to this thing. I could see how my brain would like want a pattern in this way. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, and which would remove me from like being in the world. And mm -hmm. it takes so much for me to just stay in it as is, mm -hmm. you know? So Yes, the story came out on Twitter in the fall of 2015. And while I am not on Twitter, I have a group of black girlfriends who keep <laughs> me tethered. Mm -hmm. I missed it while it was happening, but got it on the day. So it was at the end of the day and I am di like dying. I'm laughing so hard and it was rapturous and electric and sexy and really disturbing to me, but also just so funny. Like the loudest note that it was, was that it was funny. I agree. All of those things like that sexiness, that humor, that sharp wit, that sort of edge is really indicative of Black Twitter and remains indicative. I think Black Twitter remains the best part of Twitter as, as a whole. Oh, no so I question. love hearing that. No question. I think that is the best part of it. I mean, so a part of why I'm not interested in being on it is not only I don't want to like spend my time trying to figure out like some great bit, but mm -hmm. it's also that it has a, there's a quality about it that feels a little like a clan rally. Right. I, mm -hmm. I find it incredibly like just distressing. And mm -hmm. I do like to fight. I, I was raised by a woman in the military. So I like <laughs> a fight. And yes. I just don't think I need to spend my time doing that because I, I have seen other friends be hurt in that space and have yes. had a rush to want to get in there. You know, like I, I want to throw fists. Yeah. And I, I want to throw fists almost every day. And it is only marriage that has kept me from throwing <laughs> fists more. Because my wife is online, but she's not like capital O online. And so she's always like, why are you torturing yourself with these people? Like, stop doing it. And so <laughs> uh, I actually don't do most of my Twitter anymore. A nice woman named Meg does it. And <laughs> it's been really freeing. Has it been healthy? Too. It has been healthy because I would find myself trying to explain Twitter threads to either Debbie or my parents, and they would all look at me like, what are you talking about? Like, this is just not stuff that, I mean, it's the real world, but it's also really, really not. I think we forget that unlike Facebook, a lot of people are on Twitter, but it's nowhere near like everybody. And a lot of the melodramas on Twitter just stay on Twitter and they're very unique to the medium. And so I have found it to be really healthy to just step away a little bit, not entirely, but enough. And also pick better battles because 
I am a pretty shy, quiet, normal person, but Twitter <laughs> makes me want to throw hands in every single direction. Like, don't even look at me. Don't even look at me or you might get these teeth. Come on. <laughs> and it makes me want to be mean, too, is mm-hmm. the thing. I, I think I'm a smarter fighter or I can be a smarter fighter. But when when I've dipped a toe and seen a friend being treated badly, the place I want to go to is just nasty. Absolutely. It, it would totally I, unreasonable. It's not even good fighting. Right. And, you know, the thing is, I know that I am, in general, smarter than the average troll. And so it's not too difficult for me to quickly figure out the weak spot. <laughs> and, like, go That's for it. That's my kind of fighter. That's yeah. my kind of fighter. Yep. And then I think, is this who I want to be? Is this how I want to be? And nine times out of 10, the answer is absolutely not. (laughs) And I'm very loyal to my friends. And so not only do I do it to like, sort of, do I want to do it to protect myself, but also to protect my friends who sometimes get talked at in truly unacceptable ways, which is the nature of being a black woman on the internet. So it becomes this really toxic miasma of stuff that nobody should really have a part of. And so that's why I think Asia's thread stood out so much because it was so, even though she was talking about really fucked up things, it was so pure in its own way. And I loved seeing how you translated it into a movie because the movie had such a distinct narrative voice that went well beyond the thread. So what were you thinking about as you put this movie together? So it's funny you say this about it having, there's something kind of pure about it. And I really felt that. It felt very clean in some ways, Mm -hmm. right? Like not only had I, I didn't know that Twitter could go there or if it did, I didn't know that that was the first of its kind, but it had felt so fresh, right? And on reading it, there are two things that kind of happened. The first was, I thought, I have to protect this woman. Mm-hmm. I have to protect the woman who told this story. I'm not the first and I will not be the last director to work with a real person or to work on a real person's story. Mm-hmm. But I have found myself always kind of asking where that relationship starts and ends when you invite someone in. Yes. Uh, because you're using them, right? You're like using some part of them to tell your story, to help myself, to advance myself. And then at what point does the door close? And I've been really curious and fascinated about what the responsibility is about inviting a real person in to a business mm-hmm. and where the care ends. Mm-hmm. So I, on reading it, I thought, I have to protect this woman. And I feel I can. And I... I think I I can be in it for as long as it needs to go on for. So that was one part of it. And then as soon as I was done reading it, it was like that same night, I was curious how it was being written about, if it was being written about. Mm -hmm. And I had come across, I think the first article was maybe like in The Guardian. And then I think there was something else on TMZ and maybe complex. I feel those were the three places that I found writing on it with, within mm-hmm. the same hours or at the top of the next day. And each piece had done exactly what I thought it was going to do. You talk about not protecting black women, right? Mm-hmm. Each piece had 
question the validity of the story first, mm-hmm. not asking, okay, yeah, you know, some of it's larger than life. To- totally. The story is written in hyperbole, right? I mean, it's, it is a good as story. As most stories are. Yeah, as most stories are. I mean, she's telling it better. I, I, mm-hmm. I do this daily, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do this in my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not journalists. So mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking, well, she's just obviously telling the story better, but I can tell that there's truth in here. I don't, I don't know how you arrive at some of these markers without having actually lived it. Right. At correct, least for me, correct. it's a, it's a territory that feels super foreign. So I, I'm not all the way like fluent inside of this. So it feels very real to me. And that, that was the focus, what the validity of the story was not what was actually inside of the story. And it disturbed me so much that I was like, I have to tell this story. I will do whatever it takes to get this because I don't know that another director is going to be able to do it. And that's not to say that there isn't another director that's going to care in the same way that I'm going to mm-hmm. care or, or be as good at telling the story. That's not what I mean. It was the, I felt like my first job was to protect her. And then mm-hmm. my second job was to tell the story well. Yeah. And I think that level of care does come across in the movie and in the way you center Asia's story and you center Asia through Taylor Page. You mentioned something really interesting that we don't talk a lot about, which is that ultimately this was becoming a business. This was a business decision. And so how did you navigate that line of care for the person while also recognizing that there are business concerns and that everyone is involved was going to have a business interest in the narrative? Well, I just I recognize that my intentions aren't totally pure either mm-hmm. right like yeah. like i'm yes. making a move i Nixon, making a move in my career mm-hmm. and i see how this is a part of that move for me so it was like an experience in parallel mm-hmm. i could see the track that this is for my career if i do mm-hmm. a through you know g or whatever i'm going to get to the thing the next thing i'm trying to get to And then what was right next to it, sort of hand in hand is, okay, but I'm inviting this real person or I want to invite this real person. I felt that in working with Asia, the thing I immediately recognized was what her strength was. And Uh I was like, oh, her strength, her currency is the internet. Her currency is Twitter. Her currency Uh is Instagram, right? So there is no version of us making this that doesn't include her cosign, mm-hmm. uh, and and any other person who was making this movie with me that didn't recognize that, it seemed so goofy to me. I was like, do we need her to like it first, right? Like, right. she's going to say she likes it first, and if she likes it first, you know, we just have to hope that the other people do too, but we need her yes first. Without her approval, the thing doesn't, ex- it, it's going to sink before it has a chance to swim. Absolutely. I've actually done a bit of adaptation work And it is more challenging than you might think to take something and translate it into a movie, especially when that intellectual property isn't a book that's full length or a play that's full length, where you have this 148 tweet thread, which is definitely a lot of story, but putting it all together in a way that's going to work cinematically is an entirely different thing. So what was the adaptation process like? I know that you co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Jeremy O'Harris. So when we when we finally get the movie and it takes, you know, some months to get there, I finally get it. I'm I'm able to bring Jeremy on to write it with me. 
the, the first assignment. So there was a script before. Yeah. There was another director before me. There's another set of writers before us. And the team likes the script that's there, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I don't like it. I think that it's not the thing that the internet read, right? Like, mm-hmm. what I had felt about the script before ours was that it had taken too many liberties from what was actually there. It was using Asia's story as a jumping off point to tell another story. And I thought there wasn't another story to tell. I want to tell this one. This is the one I want to tell. I want to, I want to peel back and look at exactly what's here. I think it's rather rich. So we, we printed out the thread and cut each of them out mm-hmm. as like individual lines and then on a wall put up a sort of act one act two act three there's a prologue and an epilogue and divided the text in that way oh, nice. and use that because to me i'm very bad at outlining when it comes to mm-hmm. writing but i outline a little bit like that I outline mm-hmm. a little bit like the twitter thread right where i'm like okay in the first <laughs> act like i'll just list things that i want to see or things that i want to happen and i'm not great at necessarily building paragraphs to do that so it's yes. more in bullet point form so to me i was like it's bullet point form i actually like i talk like this i i probably process like this This is how I write with other writers. So it felt full. It's a matter of to you're doing a road trip from Detroit to Florida. And if you, you know, search how long that takes, it's a 19 or 20 hour ride, which there's only one tweet for. So (laughs) I I think, well, you know, we have to I I do want to flesh that out, right? I don't want to In our story, it's not necessarily starting in Detroit. It starts at home and then you go Mm -hmm. away from home. And so wanting to fill the gap between from home to away from home and knowing that that one tweet for us has to become, you know, 10, 15 minutes of real estate in the film, actually, because that's Mm -hmm. a big part of telling the audience how far away she is from safety Mm -hmm. and that the farther and farther we get away from that opening we're really far away from something she understands. One of the other things that struck me about the movie was that it took seriously sex work and women and did so in a way that didn't demean them. It took them sort of on their own terms. And so what were the priorities for you, particularly with regard to sex work and women's stories as you were bringing the film to life? Asia took the work seriously. Mm-hmm. She never puts down the work. The thing she's putting down is that she's being invited into, she's being dragged into a situation that she has no control of, right? Mm-hmm. She has no problem with sex work, actually. She also engages in sex work, but she wants to decide when she does it. Mm-hmm. And so she's being uh, catapulted into this situation where she doesn't get to decide the rules. She doesn't get to decide even how much she makes or what her her body is worth, right? And that's mm-hmm. what's wrong with it. So wanting to make it very clear that it wasn't about the work, it's when it's that she wasn't able to control the parameters of the work. And so I felt, oh, my job is to do the thing that she did. That's what she mm-hmm. did, right? I didn't walk away from the thread what I, if anything, when I walked away from the thread, I felt so much care for these women and wanted to take uh-huh. care of them, right? I really, like I said, I wanted to take care of them and I wanted to make sure that I was taking care of the work that they were doing inside the movie too because this is actually about like making the film. When I'm in Florida making the 
movie with my cinematographer and my production designer, we're having this conversation about nudity in film mm-hmm. and what nudity looks like in certain American movies versus what nudity feels like in certain foreign films and what that is. Like, what is it about? We're talking less female male gaze. We're talking more like American gaze and then I guess European gays or just other foreign gays mm-hmm. that even like I moved to America when I was a teenager and even my relationship to my body and to nudity changes when I come to this country versus having been raised in Central America. Because mm-hmm. I feel there's some Americanness that happens that ends up feeling a bit like violation and mm-hmm. and, and that I didn't think that the audience, because I felt most of our audience would be American, could handle seeing those two women disrobed and still have respect for them. I thought that that was something that they wouldn't be able to reconcile is how to respect two women whose bodies they were seeing. And that for some reason, when you saw it in a foreign context, you could have both. Mm -hmm. I, I could see a woman naked. I could see a man naked. I could see them like fuck each other and that I could still respect them. But somehow that didn't seem to happen in American films. And maybe, maybe it was also just the work, maybe because these women took their clothing off to make money because they used their bodies to make money, that that also became a part of why the audience wasn't going to be able to respect them. But I didn't have an example of being able to cite a space like this in film where I felt that the audience was able to respect their characters. I love hearing that you took the time to think through that because nudity oftentimes feels like it's treated with a lack of care that it's just there to titillate, to say, look, we can put naked bodies on the screen. And then, of course, to exploit those naked bodies. And so to approach it from this angle, you know, again, I think spoke to a lot of the care that came across. While also, you know, the movie was entertaining as hell. Like, it was funny, it was smart, and it was also really stylized. And From the first moment on, with the sound effects, the color palette, the sort of glossy sheen, the glimmery sheen across a lot of it, I loved the style. And so what did you want to achieve with the styling of the movie? So it we shot on 16 millimeter. We shot on film. And mm. that is that that's a part of my initial pitch of the movie. I felt again, this is I, I recognize there's a business here, but mm-hmm. there is also a person on the other side of the business. And I felt like when I met Asia, the first time we met on the phone and I had asked her this question about what the what her fantasy was of the film, like mm-hmm. What is what does the end of the film look like? What does it look like when it exists? And she had had this fantasy about seeing herself dolled up, made up on a red carpet, wanting this kind of spotlight. Right. This is like what she had imagined for herself. And it was so sweet to me that she was comfortable sharing that. I know plenty of people who want things like that who won't say that. Uh And so in envisioning what she wanted, I felt then, okay, so some of my job is also like, not only am I imbuing these women in this world with a certain like tenor of respect, but I also, I'm making a film here. To me, this is a film. 
This is not disposable. Uh -huh. When you are making a film and shooting on film, the whole set changes. The energy of the whole set changes. And also when I sit across from certain people and I tell them that this internet movie, you know, this digital film, this digital movie was shot on film, uh -huh. they sort of perk up because not everyone gets to do that. And certainly people who look like me don't also get to do that. And so <laughs> I, had, I had expressed to A24 and to Killer Films that – you know, if you were saying that this movie was worth imprinting on film, you were saying that I was worth it and you were saying that uh -huh. she was worth it and that that would be a part of our story, that we were worth this tangible object. And so that was great. Great usage of race, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it really worked. I got it. I got what I wanted. Uh, but I think that all of that, you know, shooting on film also is super generous with with skin and with bodies and, mm -hmm. and it made the world look kind of dreamy. And I was thinking a lot about Zola's gaze, Taylor's gaze, how she is, how she is looking at the movie, how she's looking at the world as it unfolds. And that when the audience, it's still, it happened to me on Sunday, our film, uh, we went to the independent spirit awards on Sunday and mm -hmm. I got asked by someone, why would she go on that road trip? And I was like, you're asking this today? Why today? Like, it's over. <laughs> and, well, really, We've today, moved on. We've moved we on. We've moved on. But people kept asking me, why would she go? Why would she go? And why would she stay? And, you know, I, I'm so sorry. My dog. Do you hear my dog? I do, but it's totally fine. Let that dog run into that door or okay, let the dog in. It's totally it fine. She's yeah. losing her mind. Hold on. <laughs> it's totally Janet, fine. come here. Here, let's do this. I'm going to let you out. I know you've been dying. There you go. You know, I actually never questioned why she would go on the road trip because it was like $5,000 a night. I would go on that road trip. Black women are people also. That, you know, that is a key consideration. <laughs> I do. You're already showing up to the table thinking black women are people. And you're already showing up thinking that, you know, being inside of a black body means that you're also uh, able to access a prism of colors and feelings. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't think that that's a person, then it's going to be really hard for you to understand their choices. Correct. And we're going to be at fundamental odds. It's interesting <laughs> that black people's choices are always interrogated, no matter what. And, uh, you know, there's no question there. It's just an observation that I'm not surprised that people continue even now, like at an awards show, m more than a year. Well, no, about a year after the movie came out to like ask these kinds of questions when it's like the why of it isn't the point that it happened is the point. Yes. Anyway. Yes, but there's just there's room for less nuance. Yeah. Nuance is something afforded only in not black skin. Mm -hmm. I started laughing because I thought this is the final road for me. This is literally mm -hmm. like the final day of this five year journey that I've been on. And someone's still asking me why the lead character went on this road trip. Do you ever feel do you ever <laughs> like snap back when people ask you dumb questions about smart work? I have I have a couple of times and I have not liked that I've done that. Mm -hmm. I try I work really hard to not do that. I you know, I did say at the very beginning that I do like a fight and I do like a fight, but not when the circumstances aren't fair. And that's not a okay. fair circumstance for me to fight in because uh I, I have this story, I'm not gonna get into great detail, but I had this experience mm -hmm. of being on a TV show directing an actor 
who got physical with me some years back and it like broke me like it broke me so hard that I had to like go to therapy for it for like Mm -hmm. six seven months because I was trying to understand like how I got in a situation like this and what about me had created this situation Mm -hmm. and so this actor gets physical with me and when I have told some people this story who are really close people who are close to me they ask well why don't you say something back And I think, but do you know what the story would be? The story wouldn't be that they got physical with me and then I said Mm -hmm. something back. The story would only be that I said something back. We would forget that they had gotten physical with me. And not only they gotten physical with me, they had been like abusive, right? Like Mm -hmm. saying that I didn't deserve to be at this job, calling me names. And I knew that I couldn't fight back because that's all that would be remembered was how I fought back, not what put me in a situation to defend myself. Yeah, that's uh, an impossible position that I think is almost unique in its bitterness for Black women, uh, where we don't get to defend ourselves, we don't get to stand up for ourselves without that being the entirety of who we are for quite some time, if not forever. And we see this actually with Black people, especially in entertainment, where a little reputation follows them along, and then eventually you learn the true story, and you're like, hmm, wow. Oh, oh, 100%. I mean, this happens with <laughs> their their actors, actresses that I have been interested in working with on various projects and have been told, well, that person's difficult. This happens mm-hmm. a lot with women, act with women. And, it does. Uh, of, of both, of all the races. And I'll ask when someone says they're difficult, I now, I'm more comfortable with myself. So I'll mm-hmm. ask, well, who told you that? I want proof. Yes. Give me the proof. And, and oftentimes there is no proof, right? It's just a thing that's been going around. Or someone knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who said it. And then I have thought, well, is it possible that this actress thought she deserved to be treated a certain way and then she stood Uh up for herself? Because I have been witness to versions of this, right? I've I've worked with certain actresses that I have heard called difficult that that was not my experience with them. And what I saw was them stand up for what they deserved. And I feel the equivalent could happen with a man and that no one would have even batted an eye, right? Like, and no attitude, just, I know I deserve this. It's the, I, you want, you want me, then fly me first class. Right. You know, (laughs) like you want me, you want my time, then I know how I want to be flown, you know? I agree. And especially about the uh, difficult thing, what I've tried to do now is ask, define difficult like what do you like what's the uh you know scuttlebutt what is the word on the street (laughs) so like i can determine like what are we calling difficult and 9.9 times out of 10 difficult is she wouldn't eat shit yes yes (laughs) which is such a low bar wait you just reminded me actually there's one time that i did sort of stand up for myself on this project Mm -hmm. at london sundance the film was premiering we were having our international premiere there and the moderator i think it's after the film is played yeah so the film is played i'm about to come out on stage or i'm on stage with him and he says so Jeremy and I co-wrote the movie, mm-hmm. but he wrote it. And then what did you do exactly? And I'm like, right. Like you, that you were the you fixer. Think I just get a title. Do you think anyone would just give me a title without me earning it? I, I it drives me to distraction when black women are questioned in that way. Or when like when we are co-doing something, people assume that we're not the leader of the pair, but the follower. And that's why I hate 
co-writing things. <laughs> Not because I don't like collaboration, but because I don't like being seen as an equal to my co-writer. Which, which I, I didn't am. know that was an option, by the way. I just didn't right. know. And I, I should have. And I am annoyed with myself that I didn't see it that way. Only because mm -hmm. when someone tells me they've co-written with someone, I believe that they have co-written with them. So do I, I. Like, <laughs> it didn't occur to me that there was a different way of doing it. <laughs> so I, I didn't go, okay, but in this dynamic, who really did it and who, mm -hmm. I guess, was the typist? You know, I don't, like, think like that. Speaking of sort of, like, that bigotry of low expectations, I read that when the movie came out, people told you that it would make money, but it wouldn't win awards. Yeah. How does that feel when people think so little of what's possible for you and your work? I, I want to say that it didn't hurt me. Mm -hmm. I want to be the kind of attractive that doesn't get hurt by something like that. But it, it really hurt. It really, really hurt me. It hurt because I couldn't help but think, would you say this to a man? Would you say mm -hmm. this to... A white person. I, I just found, mm -hmm. and, and I tend to go there when the sort of unsavory happens in this business. I find myself asking, would it happen to a man? Would it happen to a white yeah. person? And maybe I don't need to be asking that all the time. But in this moment, it was a woman who did it to me. And I mm -hmm. wondered, of course it was. Would she have done it as a white woman? Would she have done yep. it to a man? Would she have done it to mm -hmm. another white woman? And I don't know, maybe she would have. I just don't, I don't actually think she even saw me when she said it. Mm hmm. And what had hurt me about it was that it wasn't just me. She had said it in front of my co-writer. She had said it in front of Asia, whose story this is. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and some of my actors were there. I don't think the actors had heard it when it happened. It was something that Jeremy and I and maybe Asia had heard. I, I tried to bring it up to no one else because I didn't want anyone else to, like, remember the moment, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, of course. But, but Jeremy and I were both like really sort of like stopped in our tracks when it happened because it seemed so unnecessary. We were in a moment of celebration and then to be told that this film wasn't that kind of film or wasn't that kind of special. Right. But what I understood, I'm going to go back to saying this idea of like an experience in parallel was that when I'm at a night like the the film Independent Spirit Awards, I am recognizing that there are certain films that will get to go to that top and then there are certain films that will exist in this other space and it's not just there it's it's at the oscars it's at every level of this business right like and it has something to do with like the quality uh, maybe it's not the quality of the work but maybe it's like what's at the center of the work who is mm -hmm. at the center of the work what's the what's the tone of that work i mean the Academy rarely recognizes comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Or or if the Academy is recognizing something that is non-white, like what is the quality of the thing that's non-white that they're allowing to kind of rise to the top, right? Do you get do you get mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so I like, do, I do. I, Janixa, believe I am an artist, right? Mm -hmm. And this woman was basically telling me that I wasn't, and I was like, What? Yeah. My brain couldn't really process someone saying that to me also because some part of my own voice is saying, but maybe you're not right. Yeah. And so she's actually doing some sort of echoing that's already happening in my gut. And that's why it made me feel so bad. Yeah. And you know, th that's, what's so terrible about bigotry is that you can never figure out when someone does something like that, you know, like whether it's race, gender, 
um, for queer people's sexuality or some other aspect of identity, or if it's just that person being an asshole. <laughs> or a combination it of might all be of a those little, things. A little bit of each, right? Some sort yeah, of like, like some just ingredients like a salad bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was really thrilled. I actually never thought this couldn't win awards and I kind of was like I thought it would sort of get best director for the just the the aesthetic and the, the way the story was handled a, a nomination and um but I was thrilled when I saw that Joy McMillan won for best editing and her editing was just phenomenal and that Taylor Page won for acting I mean so, those are to me I'm like that's I wonderful. fucking won I won mm-hmm. I know they're not physical awards that exist in my home on my pedestal but i feel so held by i feel so affirmed right i'm like Mm -hmm. that they were recognized that two of my collaborators both black women were recognized for their work is such a win to me and this same woman who had asked about why taylor would stay Mm -hmm. had also said to me she was like, you know, you didn't win this time, but you will win next time. And and I did respond. I don't know if that's true. I don't know that I'll I'll ever have that. But I think all this what this has really done for me is it's I recognize that I needed this validation. Mm-hmm. I'll be able to carry whatever I got this night that, that with the nominations, I'll be able to carry this for quite some time until mm-hmm. like my next low where I need some other like massive jolt of validation. Mm-hmm. And that it is actually not about it is not about the winning for me. I think it's about being recognized and feeling yes. like and being recognized that I get to keep doing it again and that the doors will open a little bit more or that I can sit across from someone who's more likely to say yes. Like that that's the thing that I need from it. So what is the next place for you? What is it that you want to do next in your career? I I want to keep making movies and I I'm I really like working in television as well. I I like working as a guest director in the episodic space. Uh mm-hmm. I I have a few of my own shows that I'm trying to get made. I'm having this moment of reconciling that um I feel like I'm getting a good deal of yes around being a hireable director, but my mm-hmm. own IP is in this kind of funky place, right? Cuz it's like too weird or too left of center or a little bit too out there. Uh, mm-hmm. And so like trying to bring those two things together a bit more, but I want to make more movies. I'm writing something right now that I'm going to write on my own because I decided that after my first two, my first two features are co-written Mm-hmm. And I went through the process. I didn't learn enough from the first time of, uh, <laughs> as I already said, not being credited uh, mm-hmm. as being a part of it. And so I wanted this third film for myself, too. I wanted to see, like, can I? Can I do it on my yes. own? And I think that I can, but I haven't ever asked it or done it. So here we are. You mentioned uh, that sometimes, you know, your work might be too out there, too weird, too left of center. And I think that's the promised land for Black creators is to get to a place where we can make that kind of work. And so how do you stay true to your creative vision, even when people might put those labels on it? I feel like it's just, it's about 
being comfortable with no. It took me mm. five years to make Lemon, which is my first film. And it took another, well, it, I, Zola taking five years is the complication of a pandemic, right? Like it's yes. not supposed to be five years, but but it did. And with each of those steps, even though Zola isn't mine, I feel an ownership over it. I feel an ownership over like its final form. And I think that with each of those, I got to prove that I was a little bit more right than wasn't. And Mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that this third time that I get to make a movie, which will be a fourth time that I get to make a movie that like with each of those steps, I get to prove a little bit more that I ought to have or that I deserve to get the space to kind of play. I think the complicated thing, again, it's a business, right? So like you got to make the money so that there's the room to play. And if you're not Mm -hmm. making the money and like, still finding that space to play. By the way, there are plenty of white directors that I know who are, or some of them are my peers who are making shit that don't make money and they get to keep making whatever their work is that they're going to make because they've had uh-huh. like, you know, one proof of concept. So I'm just trying to get into that place. I'm like, yeah. can I just like find myself in that sort of like donor space, you know, that donor space where it's like, we just like that it's here and we're just mm-hmm. going to keep funding that it's here and hopefully it can make money. Maybe it won't, but hopefully it can, but that there's just the room to keep at it. And if all else fails, I'll get to work in the TV space and direct for other people whose work I really respect. I don't anticipate all else failing, <laughs> but, but I understand the instinct to like have that backup plan. Like, I'll get by no matter what. I'll get by no matter what. <laughs> yes. Well, Janixa Bravo, it has been incredible to have this conversation with you. I, I'm a huge fan of I'm your work. I'm a huge fan. I can't believe you wanted to have me on your show. I was like, what? I did. I did. I loved, when I saw Zola, I just, what I loved about it most was that it had a distinct voice. It didn't look, you know, a lot of movies, especially, and I love these movies. There's nothing wrong with them. But like some of the big blockbuster movies, you look at them and you're like, anybody could have directed this. But when I see your work, I know that only one person could have directed this. And that was really attractive. And uh, yeah, so I, of course, wanted to talk to the person who like had such a distinctive directorial voice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It really means a lot. You can keep up with me and the podcast on social media on Twitter at rgay and Instagram at RoxanneGay74. Our email is RoxanneGayAgenda at gmail.com. From Luminary, the Roxanne Gay Agenda is produced by Curtis Fox. Our researcher is Yesenia Moreno, and production support is provided by Caitlin Adams and Meg Pillow. I am Roxanne Gay, your favorite bad feminist. Thank you for listening.